Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of learning. I'm Ryan Rudzeski, and I'm here with Greg Baer. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Mimi Ito, a cultural anthropologist, learning scientist, entrepreneur, and an advocate for connected learning. She's the director of the Connected Learning Lab and professor in residence and John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation chair in digital media and learning at the University of California, Irvine. She's also the co-founder of Connected Cams, a nonprofit providing online learning experiences for kids in all walks of life. Welcome, Mimi. Thanks so much for having me. You are so well known for hanging out, messing around, and geeking out, which came out in 2009. Those principles, which have been since abbreviated as HAMAGO, have been used to create youth spaces all over the United States, including right here in Pittsburgh. Mimi, can you tell us about the digital youth study that shaped your thinking? What inspired it? How was it designed? And what were some of the patterns that you discovered? Yeah, so we're really going way back to some of the early research in the MacArthur Foundation's Digital Media and Learning Initiative, which the Digital Youth Project was one of the first exploratory grants in that initiative, which grew over time to span about a dozen years and 200 million or so in investment. This study was a collaboration co-PIs where Peter Lyman and Michael Carter, and we had a team of almost 30 researchers involved in looking at how young people's learning was changing with the advent of digital interactive, new forms of network gaming media. So if you rewind and remember what life online was like, you know, MySpace was this ascendant social network. We really had barely seen the glimmers of things like YouTube and Minecraft. Text messaging was still fairly early in the U.S. and although it had been uh, fairly widespread in other parts of the world. And MacArthur was exploring whether they might start making investments in looking at how digital technology was supporting learning in young people's informal, out-of-school context. And it really came out of some challenges they had in doing system-based school reform as the centerpiece of their educational initiative. And so they took a bet on this new approach, which was very unconventional and forward-thinking, catalyzed a lot by John Seeley Brown, who was on their board at the time. And they recruited a young cultural anthropologist who had been doing work on internet communities. My dissertation on, you know, online media and games networks was one of the first anthropology dissertations that looked at digital spaces as a site of ethnographic inquiry. And that was really what catalyzed it. You know, I think at a high level, the findings that really were relevant from the study was just how much young people were learning through these sort of informal activities of hanging out online, geeking out in communities of interest, messing around with technologies, and how diverse young people's interests were. So a lot of the motivation of the study was to really look at the digital world from young people's eyes, since they were the ones who were leading the charge in gaming, social media, and all these new forms of interacting, and to kind of demystify the digital world for grown-ups 
that generation gap was one of the biggest findings. There was a real gap in appreciation and understanding where uh, young people even then were looking at social media, gaming communities as a lifeline to social connection, to social support, to pursuing their interests. Whereas grownups tended to think and still think of teens, children's engagement with digital media as largely a waste of time and something they should as good parents and educators limit rather than enable and encourage. So that generation gap was one of the big findings. And then the other one was really understanding what we called the different genres that young people engaged in the online world. And that was what became hanging out, messing around and geeking out. Different kids engage with online spaces in different ways. And the same kid might have what we call friendship-driven engagement and learning, which is usually through social media at that time, MySpace, moving on to Facebook and whatever the platform of the day is, which is mostly just those everyday engagements with friends they know, mostly in real life, making friends, getting along, flirting, that kind of thing, versus interest-driven communities, learning engagement. And these are the Minecraft servers. These are the fandom reddits, these in-depth communities where kids are geeking out in communities of interest. And those interest-driven online communities eventually became a big emphasis of what we ended up doing in terms of considering ways that educators could productively leverage online networks to fuel highly specialized and technical and interest-driven forms of learning. And Mimi, I'm glad that you took us back to 2009, and that's where we began. And while for you, that work might seem like an eon ago, especially as we sit here and look to a post-pandemic learning future, but those ideas are still incredibly revolutionary in the ways that people are taking the work that you did in the digital learning space and applying it in actual learning spaces, in libraries, in schools, and museums. And what I love about Hamago is how you made it so plain and plainly accessible and understood to the grown-ups in kids' lives and how we support environments that allow them to comfortably and safely hang out begin to mess around with tools, with devices, with the ideas of their peers, and supported by adults in those spaces, and then really develop that sense of agency where they start to geek out. And whether they're geeking out on a hip hop song or a new film project or a poem or whatever it might be, that we take those principles and apply them in very practical ways. And that work is still revolutionary. You just recently celebrated 10 years of looking back at Hamago, of hanging out, messing around, geeking out. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen it used in the world and the things that give you real excitement as you think about post-pandemic learning? Well, the interesting thing about how Hamago has been taken up, you know, I think I get too much credit for the term and its relevance when, you know, in fact, we were writing up the findings of that study in parallel with designers and educators, administrators who were in conversation with us as part of this uh, MacArthur network and other partners like all of your colleagues and your work in Pittsburgh who were thinking in these sort of connected and youth-centered ways. And pretty much at the same time that we released Tomago, Chicago Public Library opened up the UMedia Learning Lab as a showcase of Homago principles. And I deserve almost no credit for that. I mean, they were inspired by the research, but they really 
had this deep understanding of how to support minoritized youth, in particular in Chicago, you could walk into that space and see that this was a space that was designed for youth, where youth were able to hang out and just play video games and eat food, which was the first time they were able to do that in a library space. There were also checking out books and doing spoken word performances and geeking out in areas of interest. The connected learning model really was a dialogue between the connected learning research network, but also people like Nicole Pinkard, who had been developing all the mentorship programs associated with UMedia, Katie Salen, who had started the Quest to Learn School around game-based learning in New York, in dialogue with the National Writing Project, with the Hive Networks, with uh, the Remake Learning Network. And so I think that both what Hamago has come to mean, as well as the connected learning model, it's really important to contextualize it as something that was not about researchers figuring something out and then deploying that in practice, but really about research learning from practice and trying to articulate what these activists and creators and practitioners and educators were doing. So I think that learning about those process issues that we don't often write about was essential to the growth and evolution of the model. And I think the other thing that became so much more salient in the years since we started the Digital Youth Project was the movement for racial justice and the understanding of how technology intersects with that in ways that are profoundly troubling in a lot of ways. I mean, the digital use study was an argument for intersectionality. We didn't use those terms, but we were arguing that young people didn't experience the digital world in the same way and that you couldn't describe digital youth assuming that all young people had that experience that privileged, tech-savvy white kids might have online. But it really took some time for our thinking, or at least my thinking, I'll speak for myself, to really understand how not only was there intersectionality and in youth experience, but that technology often had a very negative effect in terms of equity because the impact of novel technologies, especially learning technologies, tends to be to accelerate the advantage of groups that are already technologically advantaged. And we have to really work hard and intentionally against that trend. And those of us who are in research and development and who are pushing, you know, revolutionary new ideas, we always have to keep that principle in mind. Otherwise, we're at risk of becoming part of the problem ourselves. Mimi, with some of that in mind, uh, I mean, maybe I'm an outlier, but 2009 seems like yesterday to me. But then when you talk <laughs> about MySpace and everything else, it's clear how much technology has changed in just that short interim. MySpace is largely gone. Facebook is largely out uh, among youth. And now as we sit here, social media is so much more mobile and there are new platforms like Clubhouse making waves. What's interesting to you right now? What patterns do you see unfolding as we move into this next stage of post-pandemic learning? Yeah, I think that the thing that has really shifted dramatically since when the digital use study was going on is that the powerful grown-up institutions have taken over the open internet. So in the years that we were studying instant messaging in MySpace, you know, it was a youth-driven space. And now it's 
an arena that's sort of dominated by big corporations, loud politicians, a very polarized discourse, people making way too much money off of all of it. And that has really forced young people to go underground in a way and to escape into what my colleague Tiara Tanksley has called spaces of refuge in her study of Black girls' use of online spaces. Young people need spaces of safety and privacy from the prying eyes of their teachers and employers and parents in many cases. Non-dominant youth, minoritized youth, they need protection from the harassment, the polarization, all of the hate that they can be subject to online. The study after the digital youth study, we were really focused on understanding open online affinity networks that could fuel kids learning like fandom and gaming communities. And those spaces are becoming much harder and harder to sustain because there's so much risk in that open space. You know, you see this in the public reckoning, the move towards regulating social media platforms, understanding that big tech is actually part of a public infrastructure that needs to be regulated. That recognition was very slow in coming. And I think in education, we're still behind the curve on that. You know, I've been sort of screaming for the need to understand home access and online engagement as part of public education, essential part of public education, because rich kids are already superpowering their learning with all of these digital learning resources and affinity networks. And unless we consider that kind of informal online access as part of the infrastructure of public education, we were never going to be able to address this equity gap or ensure that all kids have access to connected forms of digital learning. And when the pandemic hit, it was just so clear that the public educational system was completely unprepared for thinking about learning in a systematic way outside of the four walls of the classroom. And that equity gap has just been so painful to see. You know, I think it's activists and philanthropic groups like your own Remake Learning Initiative that has really been over the years trying to fill that gap, raise recognition of the fact that it's an ecosystem. It shouldn't be something that teachers and schools should have to shoulder the burden of learning on their own. It really requires a networked and coordinated and ecosystemic approach that has digital technology not just like content delivery, but actual participatory, engaged social forms of online connection that are essential. This is Remaking Tomorrow. I'm Greg Bear, along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Dr. Mimi Ito, a cultural anthropologist, learning scientist, entrepreneur, and an advocate for connected learning. Mimi, on top of everything else, you are the CEO of Connected Camps, which are virtual computer gaming clubs. But also more than that, the camps have counselors and others who work to make sure that kids have a positive experience socially and emotionally. So before COVID, we imagine that you got a few sideways looks. A summer camp on a computer, right? But now, as we see a lot more people work and study from home, what do you think are the characteristics of a positive, beneficial virtual environment? And how can parents and educators work together to put those characteristics in place? Yeah, you're so right. You know, I've been in my little corner of the internet arguing that the online gaming communities and social media can create safe, productive learning spaces for kids. And that was sort of my little 
crazy land island. And suddenly during COVID, like everybody <laughs> was suddenly in our little corner of the internet. So it was crazy times. I mean, we founded Connected Camps or we started the seed of it almost seven years ago. And we were so early and trying to convince educators and parents that online learning was not just Googling for some YouTube video on how to fold a paper crane, but really a space for socially connected and project-based learning, which is what we do at Connected Camps. Our model is that we hire high school volunteers and college kids to teach younger kids because it's a near-peer mentorship model. And when the pandemic hit, and all the college kids were losing their summer jobs. We made a commitment to just grow as fast as we could. It almost killed us. We grew from an organization of about 30 to almost 150 over the span of a few months. We couldn't keep up with the need or the demand. We were providing esports coaching to 100 schools, and the parents and the kids just kept telling us that programs were sort of a lifeline to social connection during those really intense periods. And then the principles through which we foster our online communities and run our online programs is not any different from what you would expect from a little league, a dance studio, a community playground, or basketball court. What you want is communities that are mixed in age. So kids are learning from big brothers, big sisters, community leaders, centered around a shared passion and purpose, where high standards are what everybody's striving for, but you also have a culture that welcomes new learners. And those are the core principles of what we feel make healthy online interest-driven learning communities, as well as offline ones. And we talked about that in our book, Affinity Online, that was our core research from the Connected Learning Research Network. I think the challenge with parents and teachers, unlike Little League or dance or knitting, that parents don't have the same background, the same lived experience, and digital interests, particularly video games, have been really stigmatized and demonized by mainstream adult culture. So there's this generation gap that we talked about in our digital use study, but it's very persistent and there's a lot of fear, misunderstanding, and judgment that comes into play when parents look at kids' digital interests, whether it's Minecraft or Roblox or Fortnite or whatever it might be. And adults feel like they don't have the capacity to mentor as much as they might with a more long-standing interest like painting or music. So they're at a bit of a loss. And that's where Connected Camps really comes in. And it really came out of my own experience raising my son who's a gamer and wanting to learn how to create TNT cannons in Minecraft and level up to Silver League in StarCraft. And I didn't have any resources to mentor him myself. And I knew that there were probably 50 high school kids or college kids in my neighborhood who would love to be supported to mentor a younger kid, but I had no infrastructure for how to support that kind of thing in a safe and sustainable way. So the secret sauce of Connected Camps is really that we find passionate nerds in STEM and gaming and coding and esports, and then 
we train and incentivize them to teach younger kids. And there's nothing more exciting for an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old to have an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old who's actually gonna sit down with them and show them how to get better in Fortnite, how to do an epic build in Minecraft, how to figure out this level design in Roblox. That's exciting to kids to be with fellow enthusiasts who spend all their time on the internet and the Reddit forums, like reading up about the latest Minecraft patch and all these things that as adults and parents and professionals and even teachers usually don't have the time to do or quite frankly the interest to do and it's that sort of shared interest belonging shared language that is really the fuel that engages kids in our programs dr ito thank you so much for making time for us today before we go, can you just tell our listeners how they might find out about the rest of your work, whether it's with Connected Cams or your research or, to borrow your phrase, passionate nerddom? <laughs> yeah, so we try to uh, keep our network informed through the Connected Learning Alliance, which is an online site and sort of resource hub and community that really just brings people together around connected and game-based learning approaches. We have an annual conference, the Connected Learning Summit, and a blog and other resources. So that's probably the best place to go. Our lab at UCI, the Connected Learning Lab, we try to keep up to date with all our research results and outputs. And then Connected Camps is just at connectedcamps.com. We're always offering programs, both camps and courses, relatively structured programs, as well as our free Minecraft server. You can find all our programs there, as well as a blog that's geared towards connected parenting. Thanks again to Dr. Mimi Ito of Connected Camps, the University of California, and so very much more for joining us here. Dr. Ito, before we let you go, just one more question that we're asking all of our guests. Um, we're wondering if you could maybe share one piece of wisdom for the parents and educators who are listening. What's one thing that you hope they can do to make tomorrow a more promising place for learners? I guess the one thing that I feel parents and educators could do to make the kind of interest-driven, joyful, socially connected online learning that I hope to see more of is just to take a beat and to really be genuinely curious about kids' online interests and passions, to not be quick to pass judgment, even though the games or the media you're kids are involved in may not be tasteful in grown-up terms, but just to take a moment to look at their interests from the kid's point of view. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org slash tomorrow.